Welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Good morning, Imago Day. <laughs> All right, yeah, it's good, to be, it's good to be back with you, at least this service. The other ones, they don't, they're not very nice. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's going to be a downer. Um, <laughs> we are in uh, the third week of our series on vocation. And um, next week, we're going to start a series on Daniel. Uh, how about the Southeast worship team? You guys love them? Yeah, they're strong. And so mid-October... Uh, the Southeast site is going to go to mornings, and so you can be praying for that. We've got about 100 or so folks over there right now, and we'll transition to mornings, and uh, we're just excited about what God's doing out there, the team, the people that he's bringing, and uh, really to impact that area for Christ. So be praying for that. If you live out there, we'd love to see you. Right now we're meeting on Sunday night, so come on out. In this series on vocation, uh, we really are talking about practicing the sacred rhythm of holy work. And now most of us don't see our work that way. Work is seemingly frustrating at times. It feels like drudgery at times. And one of the things that we're convicted of as a body is that your spiritual life isn't supposed to happen only when you're at church or only when you're reading the Bible, but that the whole thing is a life God gave you. The whole thing is spiritual. And that these, these things that we do every day, like uh, celebrate and what we do with our money and how we understand time, what we do uh, for work, like all of those things are things that we're supposed to turn towards the grace of God and allow God to use those things to transform us, but also to bear witness to the world around us. And so we're looking at the, the practice or the rhythm of work. When I was about nine years old, my grandfather retired and I had, it was kind of cool because I got to grow up next to my grandfather. I, we lived right next door to him. And every day I watched him go to work and then come home and work some more in the yard or putter around. And so the day came when he retired. And I was probably nine or 10. And I remember thinking, well, that's awesome. He can, he's gonna quit working. And he had a big party and everyone celebrated. I remember the next day, at least this is what my mind remembers. Who knows when all this happened, uh, just for sake of honesty. Um, but I remember the next day, about 7.30, him banging on the door saying, I need Rick. And so I went out there and we uh, chopped wood. And I remember thinking to myself, like, why are you working? You just retired yesterday. And the first thing you're going to do the morning after is we're going to chop wood. So in my mind, I'm thinking like, this whole thing is ridiculous. And we sat there for two hours. He, he built this monster wood splitter. Just, I don't know where he built this thing. It could like take out whole trees. And I would be the guy, the one that had to pick him up, put him on the thing. He, 
splits it, pick up the pieces, and he liked his pieces this big. I mean, you had to keep splitting them down to this little tiny perfect size. He was meticulous about this. And I remember just thinking like, work sucks, (laughs) right? (laughs) Now I learned a lot of great things from my grandpa, but my nine-year-old interpretation of this experience is this is horrible. As I grew older, the first year out of high school, uh, I, I knew I had to get a job. I went to college. I went to several colleges. I was, I liked applying for college. I didn't like going to college. So <laughs> that kind of didn't work out well for the first year. And I had 11 jobs the first year out of high school, which in my mind is no big deal. In my dad's mind, it's a major crisis, right? Uh, About every five weeks, I got a different job. I was good at getting jobs. Uh, I liked the interview part. Uh, I liked uh, thinking about how great this job was going to be. It was the third week in that I was like, I need to get a different job. (laughs) This is not working out for me. Either I need to run this company or something. I mean, but, the, but, but three weeks back, it was like, I love grocery stores. I, I would love to bag groceries for my life. And then two weeks later, I'm like, this is not going to cut it. And I remember doing my taxes with my dad and my stack of W-2s was like this thick. And he's just thinking, he's going to live with me forever. But, but what was happening in me through that sort of transition from high school into adulthood was I was realizing that work is meaningless. That's what it felt like to me. Like the only reason we do this is for money. And if you have to just make money because it seems like that's what the whole world, we all have to eke out a living, then you should have the best job that you can get. And I couldn't find one that I liked, so I just kept going. Well, that, that only works so many times when you're 19 and your employment history is four pages long. They look at you like, you're not a stable person, right? <laughs> and so the question that I have today as we look at the book of Ecclesiastes is, what is the point of work? Is there really any meaning to this thing? Because it's okay to say, hey, God did it and God this, but let's be honest, you're gonna, the alarm's gonna go off tomorrow morning with that horrible noise, that you know that noise it makes? And you're gonna be like, ugh, Monday. Now some of you are morning people, you're like, hip. most of you are like, I hate my life, right? And the truth is that as much as pain, as much as suffering, as much as wonder, God uses day in and day out work, whether you're getting paid for it or not, to draw us into the deeper questions of life. And for some of us, that starts when we're really young. And for some of us, it's halfway through a career. Like, what is the point of this? Why, is this all it really is about? Is there any meaning to it. And God uses the, the work itself and the conditions that we work in uh, to basically draw us deeper and deeper into the questions of life and the purpose of all with the hope that we will be people who are wise, who engage life and work in the terms of God's reality, not the false realities that the world kind of 
shoots at us. And so my hope is that no matter what your job is or where you are in terms of your vocational story or how much money you make, uh, large or small, that today we would discover the secret of living a meaningful life, of doing meaningful work and experiencing joy in the midst of it because I do believe that is what God wants for us. And so turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter two. And Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon. It's, it's in the wisdom part of the Bible. And he's using uh, 12 chapters to basically describe the human condition, the reality of life, and how we make our way in this life. And so words that you find in this book, and by the way, I hope you read it this week because the whole of the book speaks a lot to the issue of work and vocation. But he uses the word toil and work kind of synonymously. And what they exist, they basically mean that there is a human responsibility where you and I have to work to survive in this life. Toil's not a word that we throw around a lot. You don't say uh, to your spouse, I'm going off to toil now, I'll see you this evening. Um, or, and if you start, it'll be even more depressing <laughs> than, when you, than when you leave. Just toiling away. Um, I'm toiling right now, by the way. This is my toil and you're experiencing it. Um, the other word that he uses is vanity and it comes up 38 times and it's basically a Hebrew word that has multiple kind of variations of meaning but it's essentially, it means emptiness, it means vapor. It is the empty outcome we find at the bottom of our toil. It is the place where the frustration of our life comes from. It's whatever we try to gain, but we, it disappears quickly, like your paycheck. It leaves nothing behind and it doesn't really satisfy. And when, when those types of things show up, the writer of Ecclesiastes uses the word vanity or meaninglessness or vapor. And essentially, he uses the the, the theme that our responsibility in life is to toil and to work in a world that is full of evil. And when he talks about evil, he doesn't talk about it necessarily as moral corruption, but he talks about it as the hardness of living in a world where, that is broken, where sin and death and tragedy occur. And that from our work, we gain a portion or a share, which essentially is whatever material blessing we receive in our lifetime. And so he's writing from a perspective to say, I'm, I'm trying to understand what the heck all of this means. And he is, Solomon is one of the wisest men that ever lived and richest person that ever lived. And so here is his sort of biography of how he engages the question, what is the point of work? What is the point of it all? And it starts in chapter two. Read along with me. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. 
But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? And I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, and my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water the groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And in all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor and this was the reward of my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Now Solomon had he had it all, right? If there's a corporate ladder, he's, he's 20 feet above the top of it. He could buy anything. He had the power to make anything happen. He could accomplish anything. Any type of pleasure that he desired, he had at his fingertips. And he sits back sort of from this, this very high place where he can view all of the human possibilities that we could go after. And he evaluates all of his accomplishment, all of his material possessions, and all of the pleasures that he can purchase. And he says, this is meaningless. Now it's crazy that he also throws in there over and over, I haven't lost my wisdom. I haven't lost my wisdom. Because you and I hear it and go, what an idiot, right? He sounds bored, I don't know. Like he strikes it rich, does whatever he wants. He has the American dream. He's the guy that is on the cover of time and people. He's the, he's the celebrity. He's the Fortune 500 CEO. He's the guy that invented that web thing, that app, whatever it is. He's that guy. He's the guy you and I want to be. And at the end of it all, he goes, this is meaninglessness. Now it's kind of hard for us to get that perspective because every day in and out you and I are inundated with advertisement in a culture of consumerism and entertainment and popularity and fame and fortune that really continues to preach their gospel to us. And that is the good news that one day you can have it all and when you have it all you'll be happy, you'll have security. You'll have peace, you'll be content. And yet, when we look at people who have these amazing lives, who go from rags to riches or whatever, you find out that they have lots of anxiety, lots of frustration, lots of conflict, uh, no peace, no security, and you're kinda like, uh, I know, but if it was me, I could totally swing it, right? <laughs> I, I mean, I know that guy can't do it, but 
I could pull that off, right? And Solomon isn't sitting here going, uh, this is the American dream long before the country exists and I'm telling you, it's a waste of time and it's a waste of effort. And if that's true, then the work that we do with all of the false hopes and dreams that we put into it comes back on us later in life and it creates frustration and a sense of meaninglessness and a loss of identity, mostly because we're, we're betting on the wrong horse with our work. And it's the horse that's never gonna win. Well, Solomon comes back in verse 17 and he says this, so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all things that I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to one who comes after me and who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and my skill under the sun. And this too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave it to another who has not toiled for it. And this is meaningless and great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All the days, all their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest, and this too is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and to drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who could eat and find enjoyment? And so to the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to one who pleases God. This too is meaninglessness, a chasing after the wind. So he sits there and he sort of, he, he moves from this place of, of power and prestige and the ability to purchase everything and consume everything and create anything that he wants. And he says, it actually is meaninglessness. And that drives him into a place of despair. We might call it a midlife crisis. Right? That's our language for it. That time in your life, not that I'm anywhere near it, but I've heard that you begin to reflect and ask huge questions about what is the point of it all. And what he uncovers is that there are false motives for work, false hopes for work, and false outcomes for work. And if we buy into these at a very young age or anywhere through our work life, which goes on for a very long time, then we will be not only frustrated, but we will find ourselves chasing after the wind, which I don't know about you, but I don't want to give my life to that. Nobody runs a marathon that way. How long's the race? I don't know. We're just going to catch the wind. When you catch the wind, stop, right? You're like, this is going to be really chaotic and weird and pointless, which is why I don't run those races. (laughs) So in other words, he says to be rich is to be important 
And that's not true. He says that meaning is not made from what others think of you. I was king, I'd had it all, and it actually meant nothing. And to accomplish and have makes you secure. And he looks back at all that he accomplished and all that he has. And he says, I can't take it with me to the grave. And the grave looms large over you. You're working and you can't even prevent the very thing that, that is gonna take you out. And so you're building all this stuff and saving all this stuff and acquiring all this stuff and they're gonna put you in a box and bury you. And then you're like, eh, I tried. Like that's what my tombstones should say. I tried. You have prominence or you gain position as a means of power. And he's saying, but the truth is I can't control anything that matters. In fact, when it's all said and done, all this that I have done is gonna go to my kids. And Solomon's kids were not the best kings and didn't turn out all that well. I mean, picture yourself living and working and saving and striving your whole life and then you're in your 80s or your 90s and you're on your deathbed and your son or your daughters come and you hand them everything that you've acquired and worked for. It's a big check, the biggest check that you've ever seen because you've just saved and worked and they take it and they're like, thank you so much. This is, this is really meaningful. You see him two weeks later and what are you gonna do with the money? You know, we bet it on this horse and it didn't do well. And so we lost it, but thanks, right? You go, I wanna kill you. If I could get up, I would do that. There is a meaninglessness to it. He's saying that there's a good chance that everything, like in the best case scenario, you give it to your kids and they enjoy it and they thrive from it. But in the end of the day, you can't control what they do with it. You can't control where it goes. You can't control the outcome. We think if we have lots of stuff, like if we just had a big enough house or the right kind of car or whatever, then we'd have peace. Enough money in the bank or whatever it is, we'd have peace. And the truth is, he says uh, in chapter five, the sleep of the laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. He talks earlier in chapter two about the anxiety created by wealth that you find yourself sleepless, that all these things that you thought would bring security or peace or hope actually turn in on themselves. And so he evaluates it. And he says, I went in to work with this hope and I didn't find it. I didn't find pleasure, I didn't find security, I didn't find peace. He also says that when my hope is that it will personally fulfill all of my desires, I found that empty too. That he had the best wine, the best alcohol, he could have all that he wanted. He could go into folly, meaning party hard, right? His parties were Kanye kind of sweet parties, right? Not like your parties and my parties. These were, they, they were bumping. And he said, uh, just keep going. He said, essentially, I looked at all of it and it was meaningless. He made a harem. He's like, you know what? You can picture, I got a girlfriend. That, well, now I have two girlfriends. Oh, you know, let's just call this a harem. 
And, and he had everything that he wanted, consumption and power. One of the few people that could honestly say that he didn't withhold anything his heart desired. I mean, the truth is, he could take his desires and push them as hard as he could to their most logical end. And he got to the end of sex and partying and power, and he said, there's nothing there. Most of us dabble in sin enough just to keep the taste buds alive, which is really a mistake. Luther said sin and sin boldly. Like if you're gonna do it, do it. And realize that death is there. Don't, don't just mess around and play with it. Go for it. Ruin your life with it. Don't just dabble with it. And so he didn't dabble, he went hard after it and it, and he devoured it, and then he lost his appetite for it. And he just said, this actually just sours my stomach. And the conclusion was that these false motives and false hopes that we think our work will provide us with, security and hope and peace and fulfillment, they end up being destructive and not satisfying, and then it all becomes meaningless, chasing after the wind, and we end up deeply frustrated, deeply disappointed. And so for you and I today, if we're in this thing, if we get up tomorrow, if we go about our work for money and pleasure and security and peace, then the truth is we're setting ourselves up for a dream that actually is a nightmare, for a disappointment and creating meaninglessness in our life because that is not what work is for. It's not what work does. And so what is the point of our quote unquote toil? What is the point of work? Well, there's three things that I want to say about it. And the first is this, the point of work is to do the work itself. Work is an end in itself, not simply a means to an end. Here's what he says in chapter five. This is what I've observed to be good, that it's appropriate for a person to eat and to drink and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of the life God has given, for this is their lot. Moreover, God gives, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. And, and what he's essentially saying, and, and I think what we need to recover and that scripture really does support, is that doing the work is the end in itself. Think of when you do like a hobby, if you have them, right? You work hard at it, you put in hours on it, and, and no one's necessarily paying you for it. And what you want at the end of that hobby, whether it's to become a really good fly fisherman or a skateboarder or whatever craft you're doing or art you're doing, is you want the work to be good. And the point is the work itself, that you would learn to do it well. Our work is an end in itself. And, and, and when we lose this, which we have, the vast majority of us have, what happens is we, we start to reduce work into some kind of 
get rich quick scheme. Like if we could just get rich without working, that, that would be the dream, right? If I could just make money without really working, that's, that'd be wonderful. And we think you get crazy thoughts, at least if you're like me, I, I see someone who invents some little widget or whatever, and you find out that they made all this money, and you're like, I need to invent something like that. And particularly like if the church is struggling financially, I'm just like, man, I need to invent like a, an app. I don't know anything about apps, <laughs> but I should make one up. I, I don't want to make a good app. I want to get rich by happening upon an app, right? What I want to do is be a good pastor. I want to lead a good church. That's the work that I want to do. But in my fantasy world, I just want to get rich easy. And what that does when we have that mentality is it reduces work to something that's much less than work and much more like gambling. And I want to use my job to get to get more money for less work. And then the economy wants to use me to get more work for less money. And it becomes this really destructive cycle that is like chasing after the wind and creates a lot of frustration. But if our attitude was, no, the work that I go to today, that's the point. That I'm here to do this work. And to do this work well. God put us here to work. It says this in Genesis 2, the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. He put us here to do the work. And when my grandfather got up every day and went to work after he retired and it was blowing my mind, he did it because that's what he was made to do and he enjoyed the work. The work was an end of itself. He liked his yard to look like that and he liked his house to look like that and he liked to, to, to do things with his hands and some of you like to do things with your, your head and your mind and your voices and all these other ways in which we work but when work becomes an end in itself it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Teachers are a great example of this because we all believe teachers should be paid more, that they're not compensated for the amount of work that it does. If I put 30 fifth graders in your house for, I don't know, seven hours a day, uh, you might want compensation for that. I don't know. But what happens is that they, they go there to invest their lives in these kids, and if they can maintain that this work is important, that the work itself this day my lesson to do it well and to do it for this purpose is meaningful if they can keep that kind of purity of focus, even though the systems and federal laws and other things are almost complicating that, then they will be an amazing teacher to the end of their days. There will be countless people saying, that person changed my life. But we've all had the teacher that you were like, dude, why did you get into this? Like that math teacher, I had a Mr. Huff, and he was a sweet dude, but he hated his job. And, and I get it, he had to teach me math, which wasn't good. I remember him like slamming his hand down really hard because I made him mad. And then the light went out on the overhead, and then everybody started laughing. And then he threw the chair, and then, you know, that's not going to help me. And then he came up and he punched me as hard as he could in the arm. This is the 80s, I don't know, it got away. I just started, 
I was a pretty big kid, so I started laughing, and that made him more angry. And, uh, and then every day in the hall, he would see me, and I'd be with my friends, and he'd come up, and he'd just wham, hit me as hard as he could. He was pretty hard. And then my friends would all say, kick his butt, Mr. Huff, kick his butt. Anyways, that's a tangent. That's kind of my math career. <laughs> but you can see, like, somewhere along the lines, he really quit enjoying this. And I was part of the problem for that guy. But where Christian teachers can be prophetic and doing their work is because the work itself matters. And the enjoyment at the end of the day when you can say, it is good. And this is sort of that next piece, is that the goal of our work is to be able to say it is good. When God creates the world, he sits back and says, it's good. Like that was the point. He created something good. And he said it was good. And for you and I, work becomes sacred when we go and show up to do the work as an end of itself and to be able to say, it's good. And that could be something really miraculous and beautiful and artistic. And it can also be the faithfulness of showing up and doing it well every day and getting better at it. You know, there's sort of this 10,000 hour rule. We all think like people are born and they just miraculously play tennis amazingly. And you know, there definitely is a genetic side to sports and athletics, but they put in the time. And when you watch somebody that's done it long periods of time, there's finesse, there's strength, there's expertise that shows up because they just keep putting in the work. And it's good work. Uh, it's always funny because when I've been a pastor now for over 20 years and planning the church, getting to preach a lot, and then I'll be with like young preachers. And I remember this one guy who said, you know what? Every time I get up, I know I have a hammer. And he's pointing to his Bible. And he goes, and, and I just know that I need to shape them into the image of God. And so I just bang them with this hammer. And I'm like on a panel with him going, huh. And so then it's my turn, I'm like, you know, I use the hammer a lot, but the hammer doesn't work. And then just kind of talked about preaching, like about God who loves us and what the Bible says, right? But, but it's that point of going, but in my early days, I'm sure I had more passion and more zeal and I'd study and I, I wouldn't think about me when I studied, I'd think about you and how you need the hammer. And, and then you start to do it hours after hours and you're like, oh my gosh, it's actually about me and I'm actually the worst person in my church and the gospel needs to change me. And, but this happens over time and it happens with your work too. That, that if we continue to put our shoulder into it, you become good at it. And, and I watch sometimes when moms will have little babies and other women will come around and go, I wanna hold it, I wanna connect. But you never, you don't see a lot of dudes doing that. Like if someone's like, do you wanna hold my baby? I'm like, oh my gosh. I do, but I'm really bad at it, and it's a human being, and you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to drop your kid, or it freaks me out, okay? But I'll preach to your baby. <laughs> it's the last thing that baby wants, but I'll do it. We, we have these things that we gain competency in and gifting in, and we keep doing them until we can say, 
it's good. And that doesn't happen overnight. But the work itself is meaningful and to do it well is a good thing. And what makes it sacred is that we would do it well. And it really is a black eye on the body of Christ. When a bumper sticker Christian shows up at work, witnesses to everybody, has a little uh, desk thing that you gotta put a quarter in if you cuss, and he sucks at his job. That is so bad for Christ, right? Go to work, shut your mouth, work hard, and do a great job, then start talking about Jesus. And there's nothing, it's really easy for me because all I do is talk about Jesus for a living, but. (laughs) I mean, think about it, that what makes it Christian isn't a bumper sticker. It's that you work not so that you can get pleasure and security from money, not so that you can be rich and fulfill all of your desires. You work because God put you in a garden and said work. And when you do the work, you do it so we can both with him sit back and say, it's good. And when we're done, at the end of the day, we take whatever we get and we enjoy our lives. And that is very prophetic in a culture that devours us and uses us and is chasing the wind. To do the work that's put before us for the sake of the work that's true to itself and that brings meaning will speak of our character. It will speak of our faith. It'll change us. And at the end of the day, we can sit back and say, it's good. Like, I wanna watch Robert De Niro act. I don't wanna watch a Christian movie. I know that it's true. I want it to be good. And, I, and I, I, think, I think God says that's a good movie and this one is not good, right? And, and I think we do a lot of things as, a, as Christians that God's sitting back and go, it was not very good. It was not very good. It was, it's, it's not mine. I didn't do that. And the point is that we would be people who aren't trying to sell something different, but we would be really good at what we do. And we would do it for a very different reason than the world does it. And at the end of the day, we would enjoy whatever we have. And that really is the whole point. The secret to life is that we would be able to say that we would enjoy what God gives us from our work, our wealth, our possessions, whether you're drinking two buck chuck or a really nice cab, like enjoy it, sit at that table, look at those relationships and celebrate that life is gift and all of it is miracle and it is good. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we get to participate with you in your work of creation. And that as co-creators, you put us in this garden, um, given us very specific places which we get to, to work. And, and God, this garden that you've placed us in is a place of lots of deception and lots of temptations and lots of ways that we can be disappointed and feel like we're just chasing the wind. And so today, God, would you pull us back to 
to the simple thing. That wherever we go from here, that we would sit around tables that you've provided for us, that we'd eat food and drink good drink together and enjoy the relationships you've put us in, and that we would show up and do our work for the end in itself, and that we would be able to do it good, and you'd find meaning there. And at the end of the day, God, you would look back and we could look back and say, it is good. And we thank you for that. And we ask it in Christ's name. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.amagodaycommunity.com. Thanks a lot for listening.